What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death, the national uprising that ensued, California's legislature passed a bill that would create automatic oversight by the state's Department of Justice when unarmed people are shot by police. A new investigation from, from nonprofit newsroom CalMatters shows that the oversight built into the law is, at best, slow to come, and at worst, it may be seriously dysfunctional. We're joined today by the journalist leading that investigation, Nigel Dwara, a reporter for CalMatters who covers poverty and inequality issues. He previously served as a national and climate correspondent for On Vice News Tonight and spent time as a border correspondent with the LA Times. His piece that we'll be discussing today is called Fatal Shootings, California's bid to police its police is lagging. Nigel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So your investigation follows up on a specific assembly bill, a specific California state legislature that passed in 2021. Let's go right there. Can you tell us about AB 1506? What are its intentions and how is it structured? Sure. So, uh, so as you mentioned at the top, um, you know, with the pressure from George Floyd, um, and and it would have been building, you know, since Michael Brown, Trevor Martin, was the the idea here is let's put together a tracker, or let's at least put together a, a program that is going to investigate every shooting by a police officer of someone who ends up being unarmed. And when we say unarmed, we mean it, they don't have what would constitute a deadly weapon, according to the Department of Justice. And they weren't going. They, they, they were going to take the referrals from police departments around the state, uh, and then make a decision on how many they're going to take. So by the time that we published um, on November, uh, excuse me, November eighth, there were twenty five of these investigations out of a total of fifty six times that a department had called them and said, "Hey, you know, we might have a case for you. This might be a situation where it's a shooting of an unarmed civilian." So. As you said, your investigation shows the state has opened cases for 25 unarmed people who've been killed by police. But there are quite a few more cases than that. Nigel, which cases actually get investigated by the State Department of Justice and how do they get chosen? There's 56 cases overall, as far as I understand, and only 25 are being investigated. So what's happening with the other 31 cases? Well, that's something that we're still looking into because, you know, we, we don't know what we don't know. What we did for this tracker is we tried to assemble every shooting that they are investigating and just provide more context, more facts around it, you know, record, uh, request the records around these, um, you know, talk to the, get the coroner reports, news reports, and if possible, anything that, that uh, the city police commissions have done. Um, the rest of the cases, you know, they are sort of letting us know when they when they want to uh and we are requesting it from them so without knowing definitively why or what factors they picked we did find some certain you know correlations among the shootings that we did see all right and the centerpiece of your story is that the investigation process is not being run maybe effectively certainly not in a timely manner there's rules in the law about that timely manner how long things are supposed to take can you break that down for us in real terms what are the timelines that we're dealing with for these investigations what are we supposed to expect from the state on it sure and it's not in the law itself but the original pledge by the attorney general by the doj was we'll do these in a year 
Well, the first one of these was launched on July 15th of 2021. A year later, there was no report on any of them. It took them until November 3rd to release that report. Uh, they promised it'll get faster, but that's about 16 months later. For that one, which is a shooting by the LAPD on Hollywood Boulevard, um, the Los Angeles Police Commission released their report and their determination of a justified shooting back in June. So they did it in 11 months. These guys took about 16 months. So help me distinguish the different types of investigations that are happening. You said that's the Los, the Los Angeles specific investigation did occur. But what, what are we supposed to expect at this point from the attorney general's office? Well, the other 24 is what we are waiting on. Um, we're, 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 you know, when they published these, they published about 25, 26 page report. Um, they've sort of said that that's going to be what they're going to do for the rest of these. So it'll describe the incident. It'll describe, you know, uh, the situation, maybe any precipitating things that happened before that. Um, the behavior of the officers, whether it corresponded with their training or it didn't. And the ultimate goal of the program, of the 1506 program, is to determine whether criminal charges are merited. Should the, should the Department of Justice file charges against these officers? So when, when we're looking at these, we look at, yes, what were the situations and the circumstances of the shooting? And then the DOJ will sometimes make uh, a policy suggestion, you know, maybe something else could have been done here. Um, we can talk about that Hollywood shooting, just specifically for that one, they said this is a person who was suffering a mental health crisis. The officers, were, the DOJ says they're not gonna charge them, but they did wonder why they didn't call out a mental health unit as opposed to confronting the suspect directly. So we'll talk more about some of the individual cases in a few minutes. But first, during your investigation, you questioned Attorney General Rob Bonta about the implementation of these investigations. And you pointed out some cases where investigators did not interview the police involved or witnesses for around three months or uh, a, a much longer delay than uh, Bonta explained that we should expect. We're going to listen to how Bonta responded to you in just a second, and then I'm interested in your response about how Bonta is dealing with criticism of his implementation. Let's roll that tape. What you're saying is, is not consistent with what uh, happens in these cases. We're usually on the scene within hours, um, and I get an update as to, um, like in real time, once we're aware of a qualifying incident, and then I'm told that our, uh, our teams are rolling out to the scene uh, to be on the scene and to be part of the investigation. So what you described is not consistent with um, what I know uh, to be the, the approach that we've taken and the time it takes for us to get onto the scene, the um, participation and role that we have in, in the investigation from the, from the earliest times. So it's, it's, it's almost always the same day that we're on the scene. So, Nigel, how do you respond to Bonta's statement there? I mean, in this case, all we have is the letter from uh, the city, I believe, of Westminster, uh, which told me that, uh, you know, in, in, in denying records requests and saying that they can't tell me anything, they mentioned the DOJ investigation. And as part of that, they told me that there were several witnesses that they don't believe have been interviewed and the officers in question. Now, the officers in these cases are not compelled to talk to the DOJ. And you can see from the first investigation that they didn't. So 
maybe there's a miscommunication. Maybe people aren't understanding each other. But as far as I can tell, you know, the city is saying the investigation isn't done. In some cases, you know, this is from, a, I believe, a July shooting. And the letter I got was from October uh, saying that, you know, they, they haven't talked to these folks yet. So without having access to the internal processes of what the DOJ is up to, you know, we just kind of have to take these hints from other places. It seems like in your back and forth with the attorney general, most of what he was saying is that the system is working uh, exactly as it's supposed to. You also asked him about funding um, for the investigative process, which he requested, his office requested $26 million for oversight of AB 1506, and he got about half of that. In your understanding, does underfunding in this regard have a significant impact on the slow investigation process? Again, he himself said they're doing just fine with half the funding they needed. Uh, he says to me they're doing just fine with half the funding they needed, but in their budget request, they say they don't have what they need. Uh, they, they got to a scene and they were not able to canvas the scene. They were not able to get folks out there. This is them complaining about it. Um, and they, they didn't have enough, enough officers and resources. Like you mentioned, they asked for 26, they got 13 million. When, uh, when I talked to the legislature about that, the response I got was, you know, let's give them 13 million and see what they can do in a year. And now we're wait, we're past a year, uh, and we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next budget request. We are in conversation with Nigel Duara, a report for, reporter for Cal Matters, whose latest piece is a deep dive into the slow response of the state to implement its own policy to investigate shootings by police of unarmed people. Now, at the bottom of your investigation, there's an interactive piece where folks who go to the website, and I recommend this for our listeners, can learn about the specific situations, the specific experiences and investigations that are being investigated under AB 1506. What specific investigations stand out to you, Nigel? Well, there's definitely some that we know more about because we have these body cam uh, videos from the police departments, and, and we should talk about those presentations in a sec. But so we have we have more information there, where at least we can sort of see what's happening from the California Highway Police, from the uh, LAPD, from the SFPD. But then there's ones where we really don't know a lot, and not much has been disclosed. There wasn't a bunch of news around it, and the county or the city in question isn't releasing anything. There's one. Um, by, about a guy named Shane Earl Holland. And um, and he was shot at a stop uh, in the dark uh, by a deputy who was in one deputy car. And as he was fleeing, and that's all we know right now, is he was running away on foot and he was shot. And it's an unarmed shooting uh, of, a, of a, a, ceiling, you know, a shooting of an unarmed civilian. So that one really raises a lot of questions for me. Um, and one issue with that, right, is one of the first questions you or I might have is, well, where on his body was shot? Was he shot? Was it in the back? Was it in like an armpit? What, what happened? Well, the problem is in 48 counties in California, the sheriff is also the coroner. So when the sheriff turns down uh, a records request, it's not like in L.A. where the, rec where the coroner reports are all online. They're very easy to get. In this case, when, when I'm getting denied the records by the sheriff, <clears throat> I'm also getting denied all the coroner records, which has been a real uh, problem. You said that's in 48 counties in this state. How does that compare nationally that 
the coroner's office functions within the sheriff's department? There are only three states left, including California, that still do this. Uh, there was a bill this past year. Um, which uh, which didn't make it, uh, which would have forced the separation of those offices. So you can probably expect to see attempts at legislation on that score again. Um, but uh, but for right now, uh, th- this is it. You know, forty eight out of fifty six counties are sheriff coroner. And I guess I want to ask: Do you know why that uh, legislation did not pass? It, it was it built specifically so that we could have. Uh more accessible insights so journalists could have access to information. What's the legal reason to separate the coroner's office from the sheriff's department? Well, uh, to answer your question, uh, the reason that it failed, you know, we don't know every individual legislator decision, but we know that it was opposed by some powerful groups um, that said at the very least, you know, um, we are small areas and small counties. We don't really have the money or the time, the budget, the staff. To, to have two different offices. You know, this is something that we've always done. This is the way that it should be. Um, whether they're going to propose, or excuse me, whether it had to do with, with journalism, no. Um, it's, uh, it's I, I think at least the motivation in part was just to, to have less power by the sheriff over the county. And part of that would be, um, you know, a separate coroner's office. And that seems like it would make sense. Um, Nigel, let's get into some of the really specific cases. You've made some reference to a couple. What cases should our listeners know more about? Yeah, so I mentioned, of course, the, the case of Shane Earl Holland, which I think is, is relevant. Um, uh, you know, the first one, because there is a DOJ report on it now, uh, is probably worth checking out, if only to see how they do their job and to see how, how this whole thing is going to work. Uh, that was the shooting of a guy named um, Matthew David Sova. Um, he was in uh, on Hollywood Boulevard um, in Los Angeles on July 15, 2021. And he had a replica lighter with him. He was threatening people, menacing people on the sidewalk. He went to the Scientology building uh, and told the guy some nasty stuff of he was going to kill him and this and that. Um, and, uh, and then he was pointing something that looked kind of like a handgun to passersby. So the police arrive on the scene and, uh, and he's kind of waving it um, and they shot him. After they shot him, they ran up and they said, you know, why did you do that? Why, man? That's what one of the guys said. Um, so then we got to see the report itself and we got to see how um, how the DOJ was going to sort of treat these and, and, and what was going to happen, uh, you know, as part of their investigation. Their their job, the DOJ's job is not to say, was the shooting justified or not justified? What they say is either they had sufficient evidence to file criminal charges or insufficient evidence. In this case, they said insufficient evidence to file criminal charges. However, here's a couple of things you could have done differently, like we talked about earlier. You could have called the mental health unit because this is a person who was a known uh, person to experience a mental health crisis. So as I'm looking through the different cases that are being investigated by the state DOJ, I'm, you know, we're noticing that many of these people supposedly are holding on to Um, replica guns or toy guns or things that apparently could be perceived as threats before they're known um, about, about what these folks are actually holding. I'm interested here in the development of the law and in the development of AB 1506, um, what the, what's the distinction that creates this investigation process specifically for unarmed people killed by police as opposed to say that it might be worthwhile to investigate 
any time that someone's killed by law enforcement? Why does this law specifically create resources in cases where the person who was killed is unarmed? Of course, in these, in many of these cases, the police are saying they thought the person was armed. Um, yeah. So, right. In four of these cases, there are there were people who were shot who had airsoft guns, which are they look. Uh, in a lot of cases, like firearms, especially if the orange tip has been covered up, um, but they're not technically deadly weapons. People who are who have BB guns, by contrast, right? BB guns fire a metal projectile uh, at a pretty decent clip, uh, and they are deemed to be deadly weapons. But airsoft is a sport where it's little plastic pellets fired at low pressure that they don't define as deadly weapons. So in four cases, we saw somebody with what looked like a handgun or looked like a rifle, um, uh, at least to the police officers. But uh, but was in fact airsoft. So when they were shot, uh, it was considered a killing of an unarmed civilian. Um, I think you also asked why these cases and why not every case uh, getting investigated. And of course, it's not all of these cases either, right? It, there's 56 times that a, a police department, sheriff's office, somebody has called and said, "We think we have one of these cases," and 25 times they've actually picked them up. What they what at least one legislator, the person who wrote this bill, wants to do. And what he said he's going to propose is next year, any time that a police officer causes the death of somebody else, doesn't have to be a shooting, car, drop an anvil, whatever, uh, on any person, armed or unarmed, the DOJ will be mandated to check, to investigate that. So there won't be any discretion. There won't be any turning down cases. Any time that happens, the DOJ would have to investigate. Now, will that get through? I don't know. Will it get through in the form he's he's describing now? I don't know that either. But that's at least a proposal to not even expand this program, but to create a new program that would just cover everything. Nigel Dwara, we are running out of time. I have one more question for you, and that is what comes next in the investigation and what can we expect next coming from the state in this slow investigative process? Well, they haven't said that it's going to roll out, you know, chronologically. So... We don't know which one's coming next, uh, but they've said the process will speed up. Um, there were certainly cases, more cases in July of 2021. So if they're going to stick to that 16 months, then we should be seeing more even this month. All right, Nigel Dwara, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.